0: So uh, thank you all very much for coming. Uh, I'm Rabbi Jonathan Kligler. I haven't met all of you yet, uh, and I'm going to give you a little introduction to Abraham Joshua Heschel, uh, in case some of you don't aren't familiar with him, and then and explain why I wanted to uh, meditate on his words with you uh, right now. I think it'll be self-evident. Uh, when you start reading him, and then each week we'll uh, I'll have an essay for you. Um, he wrote a lot, and his writings are very his his writings are very poetic. I was going to say the word dense, but I don't want to put any negative on it. It's not they're not dense like when you're reading something a paper and you start falling asleep. It's not like that. It's like you have to chew on each sentence because it's so beautiful. He's really writing kind of a poetry, even though it's in the form of prose. And he initially, his first book back in um, uh, Poland was uh, poetry. So let me tell you a little about him. Uh, he was born in 1907 in Warsaw. On both sides of his family, he was this scion, is that the right word? for Someone who's descendant uh, from Hasidic dynasties. In other words, he, his great-great-grandfather's um, grandfather was Abraham Joshua Heschel of Apt, and uh, a, a, a disciple of, I believe, the Baal Shem Tavor, one of the earliest Hasidic rabbis. In, and the, in the Hasidic world, dynasties were formed where the leadership, the, the rebbe, the leader, was passed on generation to generation. And he was uh, what's called an elui. Ilui is a Hebrew word for a genius, a prodigy, and was being educated to take over that lineage. He got his rabbinic ordination, and he, incredibly learned man, but because he was who he was, he then went to Berlin to get a PhD in Jewish studies in 1930, and uh, also received ordination from the liberal rabbinical um, uh, seminary in Berlin uh, and a PhD in uh, philosophy and so <clears throat> right there he's rather remarkable as someone with who is, who is knows all the Jewish sources also because he has the soul of an artist and he was clearly when you read him a mystic For him, Jewish mystical literature is alive, right? His, and yet he was an intensely modern person. Uh, While he was in Berlin, that was where he published a book of poetry in Yiddish. His his doctoral dissertation was in German. He wrote in German, Yiddish, Hebrew, and English, uh, all as first languages. He he I mean he learned English when he came to this country as a refugee, but. Then, after he mastered it, he wrote everything in English uh, that was published here. It wasn't translated, it was his English. And it'll show you kind of what a remarkable fellow he was that he mastered English to that degree. Uh, His first book was called, uh, in Yiddish, a book of poetry, Der Shema Mefirisch Mensch, which means the ineffable name, colon, Mensch, human. Right? So for him, and uh, you'll see that even in his earliest poetry, he had a philosophy, a, an understanding that the human being is God's trace here on earth. Um, he got arrested in Germany, deported to Poland, where he was teaching, and his then just weeks before the Nazis invaded Poland, Julian Morgenstern, who was the head of the Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, had been working tirelessly to get visas for Jewish scholars in Europe and basically he made up positions for them at the Hebrew Union College and Heschel managed to get a visa as he talked about it himself plucked from the fire. His mother was killed in, uh, by the Nazis. His sisters died in concentration camps. He's a survivor. And that also deeply informed who he was. Uh, he went to Cincinnati, which for him, going from the... Uh, if, if you know anything about Reformed Judaism in the 1940s, it's nothing like Reformed Judaism today. It, it, was, it, it was like going to a foreign country for uh, someone from his background. And uh, he spent a few years in Cincinnati learning English, teaching there, and then he got, in 1946, an invitation to come to the Jewish Theological Seminary in Manhattan, uh, which was a much better fit. (coughs) Excuse me, I have to get a glass of water. Um, Where, from 1946 until he died in 1972, he was only 65. He had a heart condition, and back then, today, I bet they could have fixed it, but he died of a massive heart attack, and he had worked himself. He, he, was, he was tireless until he got too tired. Uh, he was given the position, and if you want to get an idea of the breadth of this man, his title at um, Jewish Theological Seminary was Professor of Jewish Ethics and Mysticism. Now think about that for a second, that in his person, he bridged the realm of the ethical to the utterly spiritual, and for him, as you'll see from his writings, it was all the same. What's God if not the moral imperative? But what's God if not the glory of creation at the same time? For him, it was—he even though he was an activist, he... An incredible political activist, he wasn't an activist in the. He was coming totally from his spiritual understanding of the universe. Like, what else would God want me to do, if you understand what I'm saying? And so for him, it was a completely alive um, universe. And not. He clearly, as a mystic, did not have a traditional view of a supernatural deity for him as you'll see god is totally real but not a not a personality that you can like identify that's absurd to the mystic right? because that the god that they experience is the, is, is the god that of the, the the energy of creation right not a uh, so so for him being a professor of ethics and mysticism was all of a piece and that's a good clue to tell you a little more about him uh, in the 1950s, um, he really he was very focused on on the academy, on his scholarship, on his writing. Uh, he wrote his most famous work called *The Prophets*, which is a study of the Hebrew prophets, the prophets of the of the Tanakh, and what their message is. And his essential his essential message to us about, the, about that is that for the prophets of the Hebrew Bible, God feels what we feel. In other words, God, he says, is a God of pathos or empathy, not a philosopher's God. But for the, in the Hebrew Bible, what does God do? God hears the cries of the oppressed. Remember in Exodus it says, and God heard the cries of the children of Israel in slavery, and knew their pain. So for Heschel, this was crucial: that whatever God is, whatever that is, and he doesn't—he's not again not going to—you can't pin him down on a on a uh, on a um, uh, concrete description of God because that's an absurdity to try to give a concrete description. But whatever it is, it's the principle of empathy in the universe, of caring. Uh, And that informs everything he does. And so, as the civil rights movement uh, uh, gained gained, uh, momentum in the 1950s, he felt compelled to participate, both as who he was as a person, but also as a survivor of the Holocaust. Right For him, there was, again, it was all like, none of this seems to be um, uh, in separate categories for Heschel. And he became acquainted, closely acquainted, with Martin Luther King, which is how, if some of us have heard of Heschel, we might know of him from that relationship, because he was the most prominent Jewish leader, thinker, rabbi, uh, who was King's close colleague. And in fact, in some studies I've read by Heschel's daughter, Susanna Heschel, who's a Jewish scholar in her own right, um, when you study the words of King and the words of Heschel, it's clear that they were reading each other's work closely. For instance, when, uh, when King famously says, quoting the prophet Amos, let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like a mighty stream. That's not the King James translation that's not the standard revised translation. That's Heschel's translation mm-hmm. in his book, The Prophets. And so you do a little detective work, and then, of course, uh, so, and you realize that they were, they were reading each other and influencing each other, each other. And so he became more and more prominent. More, he marched in Selma um, and uh, got more and more active. He and King would introduce each other at various interreligious conferences that were happening throughout the 60s. And uh, um, in fact, uh, right uh, when um, Martin Luther King was assassinated, it was a few days before Passover in 1968, and he had been planning to attend the Heschel's for Passover Seder. So for me, that relationship is very important. Uh, as uh, For Abraham Joshua Heschel being kind of the voice of Jewish ethics, conscience, spirituality, both European and American, crossing a lot of divides. He also, along with a Reverend King, started speaking out against the Vietnam War. And started. Uh, he was part of that movement. So, he wrote many books. There was a book on the prophets, and I said, as I said, his books are slow reading. You, you just uh, it, they just are. So I've only read pieces of them here and there, um, but I still feel acquainted with him deeply. He wrote a theology called God in Search of Man. It's, you can get from the title for him. It's like think of the Garden of Eden, and think of the man and uh, Adam and Eve hiding. And God saying, where are you? It's the call to being accountable, right? God in search of man. Then he wrote another book called Man in Search of God. That was more of his writing. And he had many essays. And a collection of essays came out in 1966. This one, which the title itself is just worth having on my shelf just to look at. Uh, the title is The Insecurity of Freedom, Essays on Human Existence. Now, how is that, is that, isn't that a deep title? How is that a Jewish title? I find it to be a profoundly Jewish title. Because when the children of Israel are liberated, what do they give up? They give up their security of Knowing where the next meal's coming from, knowing who's the boss, knowing what, in exchange for the wilderness. So, this idea of freedom being uh, something that actually brings us insecurity um, and requires us to be agents of our own lives rather than followers. I love that title. And so, this is a collection of very topical essays from the 1960s. But when you read them now, we're going to read a couple of them. They're topical now, because he captured the essence. And then his daughter put out a collection of essays, must be 15 years ago now, that had never been collected in one place. Again, with the title that just belongs. I just love the title. Moral Grandeur and Spiritual Audacity. (laughs) Oh, yes. Yes, that's right. Uh, It does sound like Obama. and the title comes from a telegram that Heschel sent to John F. Kennedy um, uh, in 1963 when he was invited to a meeting at the White House. Here's the telegram, and that's why Susanna gave it this title. I look forward to privilege of being present at meeting tomorrow. You know what I just realized? Telegrams from our telegrams You like left out any unimportant words, so now it's just like texting now. It's like. <laughs> I look forward to privilege of being present at meeting tomorrow at four PM. Likelihood exists that Negro problem will be like the weather. Everybody talks about it, but nobody does anything about it. Please demand of religious leaders personal involvement, not just solemn declaration. We forfeit the right to worship God as long as we continue to humiliate Negroes. Church synagogues have failed. They must repent ask of religious leaders to call for national repentance and personal sacrifice. Let religious leaders donate one month's salary toward fund for Negro housing and education. I propose that you, Mr. President, declare state of moral emergency. A martial plan for aid to Negroes is becoming a necessity. The hour calls for high moral grandeur and spiritual audacity. So when I read Heschel, even though I know he's not judging me. Or, you know, he is the voice of... a. Why did I call this class uh, a, a, a prophet for our times? Because he is the voice of the prophet. He is demanding. he's a demanding voice. It's, not, it's a loving voice. It's a compassionate voice. But it's a very demanding voice. And of course, part of me is elevated... And part of me is terrified as I listen to the words. Isn't that what the Hebrew prophets were all about? Uh, co- you know, uh, to, as this, some of you know this phrase, to uh, uh, afflict, the com- comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. That that's the true voice of religion. To comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Uh, and that's what he does. He doesn't pull any punches, and I have to continually remind myself that I'm doing the best I can, and I'm going to keep listening to you so that it keeps me from getting too comfortable. But the same, So uh, uh, that's, that's the way he speaks, but it's not a fire and brimstone voice. It's a voice that's in love with God and wants us to be doing what he's clear we're meant to be doing here. So the first essay... Oh, any questions or comments? Yes, Susan? Um, I was wondering if you'd say something about his relationship with Buber. Oh. Um, He was a lot younger than Buber, about 20 years younger, but when he went to Berlin to study, Buber was there. And um, I do know that they had... um, a relationship, but I have, I read, because I read, cause I read uh, Heschel's biography, but I forget um, too much about it. I think maybe because Heschel was a young scholar at that point in, in Berlin and Buber was, was his senior, but I'll have to look that up and tell you. I know that they knew each other and that, they, uh, that he studied at the institution Buber was one of the ex- teachers at. I felt as though his writing. On the, the qualities of I'm sure that's true. Mm-hmm. Yes, because they definitely knew each other, and he definitely read Boober and knew Boober. I know that. Yes.
1: I was just wondering, with his background, why he
2: never wound up at the YU at the seminary there.
0: Um, I think he was too radical for YU. He was a he was. I think the word is sui generis. You know, he was one of a kind who bridged the most progressive political and social movements with the incredibly deep and authentic Jewish background. And even at Jewish theological seminary, he was an odd bird. Um, uh, He was traditional in his own practice, but he was completely radical in his politics and his moral voice. So, I don't know where he would have fit in. Did
3: did he connect with uh, Shlomo
0: Karlbach at all No, Shlomo was a later generation. Uh, Who he connected with. Uh, Yes? Was he at
1: the seminary at the same time as Modified Yes,
0: that's what I was going to say. So the Jewish Theological Seminary was an incredible incredible collection of uh, thinkers in the mid-20th century. Um, And... um, he and Rabbi Mordechai Kaplan were both on the faculty there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, again, they knew each other well, and they were in some ways similar and in other ways so unbelievably different that uh, they weren't close. Um, Kaplan came from what's called a a a Lithuanian um, anti-Hasidic family. And Heschel was from this Polish Hasidic dynasty, so that just for starters, they made the. Had we, family. I didn't realize that. Well, in, in the story of Hasidism, when it emerges in the 18th century, the uh, especially the um, the rabbis of Lithuania, the Vilna Gaon, and the, who are the heads of Talmudic learning, are very opposed to this movement, because it was a revival movement that. Uh, um, didn't, um, that was undermining their yeshiva hierarchy. Uh, it was a political struggle. And so the way those things were, they were, they were really opposed mm-hmm. to each other. Now, that didn't mean Kaplan was opposed to Heschel; It just means they had different sort of frameworks of looking at the world, even though both of them were remarkable thinkers. R- Mordecai Kaplan was the founder, of, created the approach to Judaism called Reconstructionism, which I was trained in. And I am a Capellanian Heschelian. It's like because I, I really I'm like some, some synthesis of both of their thinking. It's very interesting. Um, but at the time, they represented rationalist versus mystical camp. That was hard to, uh, uh, um, to merge. Um, And, of course, when you read about the Jewish Theological Seminary, it was such a um, classic hotbed of academic turf wars that you don't even want to know about it. Um, But uh, Kaplan and Heschel were the outliers at the Jewish Theological Seminary in the 40s and 50s. And many, many rabbis who were looking for more than the very academic, dry kind of training that they were giving at the time, gravitated to either Kaplan or to Heschel or to both. Um, And uh, that's like my teacher, Rabbi Art Green, was at the Jewish Theological Seminary, and he became one of Heschel's, like, um, disciples there. You know, whereas many other rabbis that we know of who helped shape 20th century American Judaism were Kaplan's devotees at um, the Jewish Theological Seminary. So that's a whole piece of American Jewish history that I'm not going to, you know, that this class, is but I think the best thing to say about them is that they were both kind of outliers, uh, somewhat, somewhat marginalized by the JTS hierarchy, and each of them doing incredibly progressive, important, and groundbreaking work. Yeah. Uh, great. So, I photocopied an essay for us. I had to choose something. Um, and... Uh, This is one of my, what can I say? They're all my favorites. Uh, This is about, this is a a talk he gave called Religion and Race. The opening address at the National Conference on Religion and Race, Chicago, January 14th, 1963. And uh, because racism is still, of course, but even especially in the last few years, come to the fore of our American national consciousness. Uh, I wanted to read some of this together. And then we'll take the rest home, and you can read it at your own leisure. And we're going to read it slowly. Because I want, personally, and we'll see where it goes from here, I want at least two things out of this. I want to show you how everything he says is rooted in his Judaism. Right? That's the language he speaks. And that's why this is so good for me to read it, because I'm opposed to racism. Here's the why a, why a, a learned Jewish rabbi would be opposed to racism from being from the Jewish sources. That's very important to me that we all understand that he's not superimposing a liberal mindset onto his traditional learning. For him, it's all coming out of it. And as Jews, you know. That's part of my job as a rabbi and my goal is for us to understand that Judaism, this is what it teaches. You know, you can embrace, you can embrace a uh, progressive political identity as he does from a completely traditional Jewish set of sources. And I want us to understand that so that we don't have to feel somehow bifurcated in our Jewish identities and our American identities. And uh, the other reason to go slow is to savor his words and to reflect on them, because that's this is not a treatise. This is a this is this is poetry, uh, and so let me hand this out to you. This is your copy to keep. Oh, um, I think I need just the right number. <laughs> yeah, please. Thank you. Oh, it's OK. I can hand them over. You <laughs> two over here.
1: Oh, gosh. There's four more. I need
0: one. Yeah. Three over here. I'm <laughs> oh, sorry. I
4: really
0: I have enough. Who else needs one? Oh, yes. He's <laughs> right there before. Oh, yes. <laughs> but this is the whole essay. It's like a
3: great line. It's just the beginning Right.
0: 1963, remember January. Okay, so uh, when, was the, uh, when was the Voting Rights Act passed? After um, Johnson came in, right? Yeah. Yeah, so a year later. At the first conference on religion and race, the main participants were Pharaoh and Moses. <laughs> Moses' words were Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Let my people go that they may celebrate a feast to me. While Pharaoh retorted, Who is the Lord that I should heed this voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. The outcome of that summit meeting has not come to an end. Pharaoh is not ready to capitulate, the Exodus began, but is far from having been completed. In fact, it was easier for the children of Israel to cross the Red Sea than for a Negro to cross certain university campuses.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Let us dodge no issues. Let us yield no inch to bigotry. Let us make no compromise with callousness. I just have to stop there. I mean, he learns English as a, you know, in his 30s. And this is the way he writes. Um, however, uh, so the question that's going to, uh, that one of the things that we'll see coming through all this is uh, this question of, this, this Pharaoh's response, I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. And the question is, what does it mean to know God? Uh, so Uh, I'll read on. In the words of William Lloyd Garrison, who was a great uh, progressive social activist of the, am I thinking of, is he the abolitionist? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I will be as harsh as truth and as uncompromising as justice. On this subject, slavery, I do not wish to think, to speak, or to write with moderation. I am in earnest. I will not equivocate, I will not excuse, I will not retreat a single inch, and I will be heard. Now, religion and race, how can the two be uttered together? To act in the spirit of religion is to unite what lies apart. To remember that humanity as a whole is God's beloved child to act in the spirit of race is to sunder, to slash, to dismember the flesh of living humanity. Is this the way to honor a father, to torture his child? How can we hear the word race and feel no self-reproach? I'll just read on and then we'll talk. Race, and here it. Is, we forget this, but he didn't even 60, 50, 50 some years ago. Race as a normative, legal, or political concept is capable of expanding to formidable dimensions. A mere thought, it extends to become a way of thinking, a highway of insolence, as well as a standard of values, overriding truth, justice, beauty. As a standard of values and behavior, Race operates as a comprehensive doctrine, as racism. And racism is worse than idolatry. Racism is Satanism, unmitigated evil. Few of us seem to realize how insidious, how radical, how universal and evil racism is. Few of us realize that racism is man's gravest threat to man. The maximum of hatred for a minimum of reason. The maximum of cruelty for a minimum of thinking. Perhaps this conference should have been called religion or race. You cannot worship God and at the same time look at man as if he were a horse. Let's pause there. Uh, First of all, he's writing in 1963. I'm sure if he was writing today, he would have used... Uh, he wouldn't have said "man" exclusively for writing about hum- human beings, right? But that—that's—that was the convention of the time, um, and uh, we'll we'll sort of have to read through it or change it as we go as we wish. Uh, does anyone want to share any thoughts, reactions, reflections? Yes, Rob.
2: I recently saw uh, I Am Not Your Negro, you know, the James Baldwin Oh, the James And I was struck by the um, power, I, I was blown away by the power of Baldwin's language, and it, also the density, and it's, it's very similar. And um, if you haven't seen it, it's, it's, I wonder if they were connected as well. I wonder. Really, um, really shocking. How I don't know if anybody else saw it, but it's really...
0: I wanted to see it, but I didn't get powerful. to it. I mean, remember James Baldwin left the U.S. just so he could catch his breath, right? Yeah. Yep. In ten years. Mm-hmm. I have heard it is the movie of a lifetime to see. Okay, I am not your Negro. Yes. James Baldwin, thank you. It
3: was wonderful. I am not your yeah. special or something.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, no, I got it. I got it. Uh, yes, Gail.
4: I'm taking a, a class on the history of Kingston at Lifetime Learning at Bard, and something was read the other week uh, when Hingston was a commercial center. So in the mid, mid-century, mid, actually 1820, around then, they would have weekly dances, balls. And the description somebody wrote in their diary was, and so the men would pick the women up who were invited and bring them to the ballroom at 8 o'clock. And refreshments would be, dancing would continue until 1 in the morning when the women were brought back. And during the dances, refreshments were served by slaves, Mm. and it just goes on. Mm.
0: In In Kingston in the 1820s, right?
4: And the acceptance, and it's not slavery now, but it's the same quality of acceptance. Yeah.
0: When it's the water we swim in, Mm -hmm. which is like, you know, as he'll explain, many you know decades ago but now is becoming more commonly uh expressed race is an invention right it's just an invention he'll get to that uh, uh and yet we treat it as though it's real there's nothing real i mean now with now with now the genetic testing you know when henry Louis gates did, who's the professor of african-american studies at harvard did his uh Show, started doing his shows on genetic histories and discovered he, his genetic uh, inheritance was 52% Caucasian? What did that make him? You know, race is an invention. Uh, and then he got arrested on his front porch in Cambridge for trying to get into his own house where he couldn't have the key, right? And so race is an invention, and it's so we're so used to it as being something real that we forget that. It's a way to organize people, and then it becomes a way to control people, and a way to exploit people. Right? That's going
5: on for
1: for centuries, like white people. Let's see. At the first conference on religion and race,
0: (laughs) the main participants were Pharaoh and Moses. Mm -hmm. Right. That's the point. This is what we do, and uh, that's what human beings do. We we make we we create. We create essentially arbitrary categories in order to control and maintain power and manage other populations and also to make sense of the world. I understand that. Uh, It's a great challenge to move beyond the concepts of race in any way because we also have to live with them because the consequences of those social structures are real. And so we can't ignore it either. So, you know, the, the pleasant... An easy way out would be to say, aren't we all the same? Well, yes, but no, because racism does exist as a a force. And so we have to also acknowledge it while we remember it's an invention, that that's just another child of God right there, uh, sitting across from us.
2: be the same.
0: And then when too many started to converse, they go, oops. Right. And, you have through, uh, through, um, a basis. and the same thing, you know, in North and South in the United States. Right, right. That's right, as Barbara was saying, uh um, blackness was essentially um made into a category to support the slavering industry. Right. That's what it was. It was it there's no separating our understandings and definitions of race from the exploitative circumstances under which they were uh, invented. Um, It's a a really thorny problem. Yes?
3: There was an insight that I had. The movie that's in town now called The Lost City of Z uh, is about a British explorer who had the burning desire to find this lost city in Bolivia this, this, this lost culture. And it was like the mid-1800s, I guess. And he received, and he went back many times, and he didn't eventually find it, but it was eventually found. Um, but the people who were against him didn't want him to go because they didn't want to take the chance that there was an advanced culture in South America. They, they knew it had happened in Europe, and they knew it had happened in Asia, but they weren't willing ah, to, to... That's right.
0: Uh, by the way, is it very warm in here? No. Yeah. I, I, I don't want people to start nodding off. Uh, let me just check the... I'm going to pull cool it off a tiny bit. Yeah, it got very warm. Uh, it's these lights. I figured it out. Um, I'm sorry. I, uh, oh, so uh, I read, a, again, I'm ranging a lot, but uh, one of the most interesting books I've read in the last number of years is called 1491. Um, it's by an historian of the Americas talking about what we know about pre-Columbian civilizations in the New World and the number of advanced civilizations that were here, and that essentially got wiped out not by superior uh, uh, um, military technology, but by uh, pathogens, by smallpox, especially. Uh, The the Europeans basically just got lucky um, uh, because the smallpox went ahead of them, but the evidence of incredibly elaborate advanced civilizations in the New World. It's a fascinating book, 1491. That was fun to read. That was exciting when somebody's pointing out a different way of looking at things than you ever did. And part of that pointing out was, he said, but all of our um, myths about the New World were that it was unspoiled. So there couldn't be civilizations here. And that the, and that the, 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 the uh, Indians were noble savages. That is, somehow, what we might have been like before civilization kind of transformed us. So if you have this idea that you're entering a place that's unspoiled, filled with noble savages, then that makes it impossible to even imagine that there was a different reality. And now uh, that's, that's what was great about that book, was that it punctured that whole... Cause, I grew up reading the same history textbooks as everyone else, Lewis and Clark, Louisiana Purchase, The March Westward. It's like I grew up on that stuff. It's like I never thought much about it. Uh, And then that was a great book.
2: It still goes on today.
0: It all goes on today. That's why I look for literature that can help me uh, puncture my own unaware preconceptions. Jerome?
2: I saw an interview. on one of the Sunday talk shows, uh, the man was interviewing some high-ranking Christian clerics, Yeah. And he was asking them, what did you think of Christianity today? And one of them responded that if people really wanted to know about what Christ was teaching, they should go back and read what the rabbi Yehoshua said 2,000 years ago. That's right. And that would give them an idea of what Christianity really stood
3: for. Not what it stands
0: for. Today. That's beautiful. Um, uh, again, um, uh, that's another area where she I've was been. a
3: black woman, too. is a, a black woman, woman minister. minister.
0: Oh, that's so great. So, once again, the, story, <laughs> the narrative that we walk around with precludes us seeing other, much of what's going on around us. Now, that's human nature, right? We have to organize reality. That's what we do, not just have to, that's what our brains do. We organize reality into narratives, and then we join with other people in that narrative, and we walk through life with a story. That's the way we're wired. And yet, can we get to the place of sophistication enough where we can recognize there are other stories and start hearing them and loosening up the edges of our story to know that it's just a story, one, I mean just in terms of just one possible narrative and that there are many others and the more narratives that we can integrate the closer to maybe a, a, a reality we might be able to uh uh um find ourselves let's read a little more i'm in the middle of page 86 shortly before he died moses spoke to his people and said, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day. I have put before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life. The aim of this conference is, first of all, to state clearly the stark alternative. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day. I have set before you religion and race, life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life. Reinhold Niebuhr said, race prejudice, a universal human ailment, is the most recalcitrant aspect of the evil in man, unquote. A treacherous denial of the existence of God. See, each sentence is like, well, want to talk about that one? Um, Because why would Race prejudice be a denial of the existence of God? What do you think is Heschel's uh, reasoning there?
3: Because God talk is one. In, in, in our, talk louder. In our image, we create. We create
0: the human. We create the human. In God says in we've our created image. the human in our image. the very foundational aspect of Judaism is that God creates the human being in the divine image. And so
3: together we are one.
0: And then you put it all together and we're... Mm-hmm.
3: We're descended from one man.
0: One Adam. One A-D-A-M.
1: Thank you. You can that
0: And one mother. But the idea is, we, the, the Jewish idea is, again, again, we need to make sure that, that we remember that we're all children of a mother, first of all. But the sublime idea in Genesis, you have to remember that it says, And God created Ha'adam, the human. Adam means the earthling, made from the Adamah. God created the Adam, male and female God created them. That's Genesis chapter 1. So the basic statement is, all human beings are created as a, a, by God and are therefore children of God or in the image of God. So he then describes what I got... Do- oh, yes, Burr, I have a problem with uh, uh, uniting everybody to be the same. You want? Uh, he's not saying we're all the same. He's saying we're of the same value. Well, it's the same.
2: What? If you have a little, a small group of people who have their own beliefs, their own culture, and there is a bigger group who assimilates them, that means you have eliminated the group that had right
0: existence, existence. Right. For the better of the big one. Okay, how is that related to what we're reading here?
2: Little guy was considered to be a race, a different kind of a piece of person than the ruling majority. Right. So, what what it really does is uniting all the little people to become a huge communist magnitude.
0: Well, that's certainly not what Heschel is saying. I don't say it wasn't
2: common, but just an
1: example.
0: Right. Right, that's the tyranny of the majority. Right, that's not what Heschel's saying. If you see every human being as of equal value to yourself, that means that you understand that we're all the same. We're all the same in the fact that God created you as you and me as me. And if I treat you as anything of less value than I treat myself, I am committing evil. Do you understand? Evil is when you treat someone else as somehow not a child of God. You're not trying to make them like you in that case.
1: But naturally, they are different than you.
0: Naturally. Because, that's right, because if you look They're at the first... They're naturally fr- different from us.
5: Why would you want them to become like us? That's truth. We're not
0: saying that. We don't. That's certainly not how I read this, Buria. Um, Heschel of all people. Let's read on and see if that still holds up for you as we go on. What is an idol? Any God who is mine but not yours. Any God concerned with me but not with you is an idol. So, again, part of why I going to share this with you is because he's using traditional Jewish language that speaks to him in this way and speaks to me in this way. What does it mean in the Ten Commandments when the Creator says, do not place any false gods before me. Do not worship idols. What does that mean? For him, if God is the creator of all, and if all human beings are created in the divine image, meaning every single one, then if you worship a god that you say is mine but not yours or is mine yours too but cares about me more (laughs) or mine and yours if you adopt it that's idolatry because there's no way for Heschel that the definition of the creator of the universe could function under these circumstances That is a human fallacy, and a human fallacy, when applied, of of God being limited in that way leads to evil, because that means there's a set of humanity to whom God doesn't pertain or apply, and therefore can be subject to our whims. Ivy? Ivy? Mm-hmm. I always have trouble with I know.
1: So I think that it wasn't meant to mean what it means to me. <laughs>
0: what the chosen people means depends on what era you live in. Uh, the chosen people is not a fixed category. Heschel is bringing the idea, for Heschel, for example, who grows up in the 20th century, gets a secular education in weimar germany um, uh, and a phd in philosophy and reads everybody and is a modern guy coming from he wants to take the categories that he grew up with but expand them to their ultimate universal application not at the expense of judaism he loves judaism and that's also I think it's important to say that's what Kaplan was also deeply engaged in in his own way was taking the categories of Judaism from the pre-modern period and reinterpreting them or as Kaplan said, reconstructing them that's where he came up with the word for a modern, universalistic, humanist worldview so yes, we can wrestle with the chosen people idea and we should but as you'll see um, if it's going to get in the way as far as Heschel's concerned then we need a new way of describing what we were chosen for. Right? And so it, it, it demands that we address that question. But because we're modern Jews we give ourselves the permission to ask those questions. Right. And that is, that is the uh, place from the ancient sources. See, chosenness appears in the Torah under various circumstances. We've been chosen to have... Some of it is... Most of it, though, is conditional. Most of the choosing in the Bible is conditional. If you fulfill the commandments, then you will be a treasured people to me. You have been chosen to be a light unto the nations, to bring the prisoner out of the dungeon and out of the darkness. So in that sense, our chosen uh, role, as we understand ourselves, is what Heschel's doing, which is bringing what for him is the truth, the deepest truth about the nature of God and of humanity through to to, to human beings. So Heschel's a great modern reinterpreter of Judaism who can give us a way of approaching chosenness uh, where it's more of a sense of mission rather than something applying to our specialness. Um, Yes, Esther? I have been struggling with the notion of um, how can a person view another
5: person as subhuman? Yeah.
0: Right. You're just not wired that way, Esther. You know, it's like uh, it is one of the greatest self-justifying um, things that humans have always done. And I, one of the questions that's been raised in my consciousness as someone who is not, is all, I'm never much of an animal person, but because animal rights are so much on the table and cognitive studies are showing that animals have memories and, uh, feelings and experiences, and it's like, are we going to need to, we've always treated animals, not without love, but as utility, in their utility to us. And so we did manage to do the same by defining outgroups of people so that they could be of utility to us. So it's, a, it's just amazingly in our self-interest uh, on one level to um, create those uh, Artificial categories, and I wonder if we, you know, it's a lifelong challenge to grow beyond it, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Yes? I just wanted to go back to her dilemma
5: the notion of divine image, which is a singular term, but it seems to me if we are all created in God's image, that image is infinitely
1: diverse. Right.
0: That's right. So you're, you're saying what, um, in, in the Mishnah, in the collection of Jewish law from the second century, uh, there's a very famous passage, which you've heard me say before, where they're talking about if you're a witness in a capital case and you have someone's life potentially in your hands by the way you testify, it said, before such a case, the judge shall shall exhort the witnesses as follows, and then it says, and it says, see how great God is. When an earthly king mints a coin in the king's image, each coin is the same. Mm-hmm. But when the King of Kings mints human beings in the divine image, each one is different. I love that because it, this is not logical. You just, and if you, but it's true, because to compare God, to compare the creative energy of the universe to a human being is always going to be a flawed metaphor, and all we have is metaphors. Uh, so um, uh, they go on to say, and remember, God created only one human being, Adam, so that you couldn't say to this, your fellow, your ancestor, my ancestor was greater than yours. And they are exhorting the witnesses back in the second century to remember that that's a human being sitting on the stand. Uh, The other thing about diversity that you mentioned that is very important to me is when I have these conversations with various believers who are convinced that that God only created one right way to worship, and if you'd all just come around to this way, then the world will be redeemed, is I say, but look at the world. God created, and look at the chapter one of Genesis. I mean, look at the world. God created infinite diversity. You think, therefore, God wants just one way to worship God? I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, God must love diversity, or the world wouldn't be this way. And so I have that conversation. don't know if it works or not. (laughs) Um, Yes, Barry, and then Gail, and then
1: physical things, like rays of your hair. Right. It's something more deep and more spiritual. And I guess against the animal uh assume, presumably there, there's a difference in level of level of consciousness. Right. That's what's about sort of the level of spiritual morality.
0: Well uh the question of what it means to be made in God's image we've talked about a lot over the years because again it's not a um a recipe. It's not like add two tablespoons of this and and that, and you have God's image. It's an evocative phrase. And so what does it evoke? And so the only question is, let's assume that Judaism has given us this beautiful, beautiful phrase, metaphor, for describing our relationship, which is that every human being is made in the image of God. And then we get to talk about what does that mean? Rather than starting by saying, only some of us are, are God's, cho- choose God's children or God's special ones. Every single one. Start there. And then, is it about our ability to create and destroy? I think so. Is it about the fact that um, uh, it's an exhortation that whenever we meet someone, we see that they are a, ch- uh, they are a miracle? A divine creation—it's that too. So it's interpersonal. Um, Is it about? It's all of them, in my in my opinion. It's just this great kind of starting place to make sure we're following that north star of how we're supposed to treat other people. That's how and how we understand ourselves. So uh, uh, and then again, going back to Buber, who was mentioned before, Buber's great thesis was in his famous book called "I and Thou." Where he said, We have essentially, and I'll do it sort of not do it justice, but this is what my takeaway was most of all from it is that essentially we have two ways of perceiving everything. We can see, and and, and I'll remember the example of the tree. We can look at a tree and see it's, it as something of utility to us fruit, lumber, uh, shade, right? And it has no intrinsic value of its own other than its usefulness. And that's called the I-it relationship. And then he says the I-thou relationship, and thou is the intimate, not the, in Old English, right, du, ich and du, in German, it's the intimate thou, it's not the formal you, um, uh, is when you look at that tree and you commune with it. And it is a miracle and a mystery that you are in love with. And he calls that the I-thou relationship. So it can apply to human beings, but it can also apply to absolutely anything that we contemplate. And then our goal then is to engage with the world without losing the I-thou sacredness of all our interactions. Uh, Different religious thinkers express it in different ways. Uh uh breweria.
2: Let's go back to creation.
0: All the way back. Okay. And the recipe that you mentioned. The recipe.
2: We are a recipe.
0: Earth? We. yes. We are made of the
2: Yeah. So we all have breath. We're all are related. We breathe the same air. We exhale, exhale the same spirit. But the ingredients, the dough that he used to make the figure, is from all kinds of <coughs> like chemistry
0: and uh, vegetation. So it's the things. earth. Yeah. Just like making a cake. Oh, just like it. We make
2: the dough, but what holds it together? The liquid, the water, and breath, spirit is actually baking powder.
0: Uh Baking powder, okay. (laughs) So,
2: while we're all the same in terms of existence, because we exist if we breathe, Uh, we we love and we live when we breathe and we expire it, we stop. Yes. So, the ingredients that holds our bread is, the, is a conglomeration of everything that's available
0: around us. Okay. As, <laughs> uh, I, I have a lot I want to say about that, but I'm not going to right this minute, because I want to see what Gail had to say.
4: I wanted to comment on the chosen people and in relationship to diversity Mm -hmm. also because I've thought about this a lot, (laughs) as most of us have in this room. Um, And I'm I'm very certain that there are multiple religious and spiritual pathways to revelation. Right. As a modern, I'm very aware of this, okay. And I also believe that somewhere around 3,000 years ago, there was some kind of revelation that's at the core of the Torah, Mm
1: -hmm.
4: Okay. And for the people living at that time, who were in a much smaller world, in which everybody else was worshiping idols, in fact, Mm -hmm. and did not have the same attitude about morality. I've been teaching on this, Mm some. I could talk more, but just leave that sentence. they really saw themselves as having a very special role. Yes. Right. But it's sort of like, you know, the spaceship comes down with an advanced civilization, saying, this is really how it ought to be, folks, you know, somewhere in the middle of the African, Kal- you know, Congo, and somewhere else in the middle of Asia, and somewhere we don't know about all of the other visitations. So each of us thinks we have gotten the special revelation. So we are the chosen people. That's what I'm trying to say. Right, right. But, pr- but that's just, that's just a, um, I think to me, it's a, um, an artifact of them getting whatever they got at a time when they were the only ones in the area having it. So
0: Understood. Does that Understood. So I
4: just want to say that about chosen people. So, ano- so another the way, way... The mm-hmm. language is an archaic one. It's an archaic Maybe way of describing it. People mm-hmm. kind of isolated in, in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. That, that's what I'm trying to say. But we don't have to take it in the same way, any longer. No. That, that's all. Does that, I hope that's useful for somebody. I,
5: my, 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 my best friend's mother used to bristle about the chosen people, and so she would say, yeah, we're chosen, we're chosen to suffer. Okay. Yeah, right. yeah. It's a common
0: one. I guess what I want to say about that is part of the difficulty of talking about the chosen people as a, bunch of, as a Jewish group is that it's been used as a cudgel against us. And so we're very touchy about it, um, justifiably, because it's been used as an anti-Semitic weapon against us. And so it's not a neutral subject. Um, So I want to suffice it to say that uh, for our purposes, um, well, I guess what I want to say is that Therefore, that makes it a complicated and long discussion that requires a lot of self-introspection. What do you and I don't want to do this today, but it would be the question of what do you feel and think when you hear someone say, Oh, you're the chosen people? What is the, and, and because there's so much anti-Semitic stuff laid on about you people, mm-hmm. that it's very hard for us to look at this. Now, from my academic perspective, I see it as the way pre-modern people organize reality. The Pueblo, which is their Spanish name, are because they called themselves the people. Everybody else was everybody else. When I was in Bali, they clearly understand themselves as the people. And everybody else is everybody else. And that's the way we are wired for our in-group to identify with our holy mountain, with us as the center of the universe, with the earth at the center of the sun going around it, that's the way our brains are wired. And then we have, over the last 500 years, begun to eclipse that understanding of ourselves. And I'm glad. So let's keep eclipsing it. You know, we don't have to hang on to it just because uh, it's what we inherited. You have to see whether it's, whether whether we can rework it into a meaningful concept for our own time, because those of you who don't know me know that I'm pretty radical about all this. I do not think there was a divine revelation that said, use this word. Mm -hmm. I think every piece of human language is already an artifact of interpretation. We have an insight, and then we try to articulate it as we articulate it, it's inherently already limited in its scope and culturally determined. And so our task is not to get too attached to that as we move forward. So that's where I want to leave that for now. Um, the bigger perspective we can get historically, cosmically, interculturally, it's going to help us in the 21st century, everybody. I don't want us to retreat into old concepts because they're comfortable. And Judaism will survive even if we challenge some of its core tenets. Uh, It's happened before, and that's another longer lesson about Judaism as an evolving uh, uh, tradition, not as a static one. Okay. So, what is an idol? Any God who is mine but not (laughs) yours. Any God concerned with me but not with you is an idol. Faith in God is not simply an afterlife insurance policy. Racial or religious bigotry must be recognized for what it is, Satanism, blasphemy. For Heschel, it's blasphemy because you have taken another human being and turned them into an object, something less than some, a full human mystery. In several ways, man is set apart from all beings created in six days. The Bible does not say God created the plant or the animal. Now this is preaching. This isn't science here and it's not theology. He's preaching. He's at the Conference on Religion and Race and he wants people to know that uh, dividing people up into greater or lesser by arbitrary categories is wrong. Sinful. God created The, the Bible does not say God created the plant or the animal. It says... God created different kinds of plants, different kinds of animals. In striking contrast, it does not say God created different kinds of man, men of different colors and races. It proclaims, God created one single human. From one single human, all humans are descended. And again, he's quoting the rabbis when he says that. That's why I brought you the source. To think of a man in terms of white, black, or yellow is more than an error. It is an eye disease. A cancer of the soul. The redeeming quality of human beings lies in uh, his ability. Here's another copy, Abby. Thank you so much.
1: Thank
0: you. The redeeming quality of, of, I'll just say man for now, lies in his ability to sense his kinship with all men. Yet there is a deadly poison that inflames the eye, making us see the generality of race, but not the uniqueness of the human face. Pigmentation is what counts. The Negro is a stranger to many souls. There are people in our country whose moral sensitivity suffers a blackout when confronted with a black man's predicament. How many disasters do we have to go through in order to realize that all of humanity has a stake in the liberty of one person? Whenever one person is offended, we are all hurt. What begins as inequality of some inevitably ends as inequality of all. In referring to the Negro in this paper, we must, of course, always keep equally in mind the plight of all individuals belonging to a racial, religious, ethnic, or cultural minority. This conference should dedicate itself not only to the problem of the Negro, but also to the problem of the white man. Not only to the plight of the colored, but also to the situation of the white people, to the cure of a disease affecting the spiritual substance and condition of every one of us. What we need is an NAAAP, a National Association for the Advancement of All People. Prayer and prejudice cannot dwell in the same heart. Worship without compassion is worse than self-deception. It is an abomination. Thus, the problem is not only how to do justice to the colored people, It is also how to stop the profanation of God's name by dishonoring the Negro's name. One hundred years ago, the emancipation was proclaimed. It is time for the white man to strive for self-emancipation. Page 88. To set himself free of bigotry, to stop being a slave to wholesale contempt, a passive recipient of slander. Now he quotes Ecclesiastes. Again I saw all the oppressions that are practiced under the sun and behold the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. Now he's going on to another key Jewish teaching. There is a form of oppression which is more painful and more scathing than physical injury or economic privation. It is public humiliation. What afflicts my conscience is that my face whose skin happens not to be dark, instead of radiating the likeness of God, has come to be taken as an image of haughty assumption and overbearance. Whether justified or not, I, the white man, have become in the eyes of others a symbol of arrogance and pretension, giving offense to other human beings, hurting their pride, even without intending it, my very presence inflicting insult. My heart is sick when I think of the anguish and the sighs, of the quiet tears shed in the nights, in the overcrowded dwellings in the slums of our great cities, of the pangs of despair, of the cup of humiliation that is running over. The crime of murder is tangible and punishable by law. The sin of insult is imponderable and invisible. When blood is shed, human eyes see red. When a heart is crushed, it is only God who shares the pain. It's incredible writing, I think. But this is what he's coming at. In the Hebrew language, one word denotes both crimes. Bloodshed in Hebrew, is the word that denotes both murder and humiliation. OK, let me talk about this a little. The rabbis, who are the rabbis? the Torah that Heschel inherited and gives to us is the Torah, the Bible, as interpreted and developed and expanded upon by the ancient rabbis. So, for the rabbis, now, it it says in the Torah, uh, the Torah itself doesn't equate murder with humiliation. The rabbis do that. Uh, humiliation is a sin in the Torah, but the rabbis want you to know and want, wanted the Jews to know that uh, humiliating someone, causing them to redden in their face, shaming them in public, or causing them to blanch. So they talk about blood as that's their metaphor. Either the blood rising to their face or the blood like draining from their face. It's like you're spilling blood. And that's why he uses the metaphor of you can see a physical injury, but a crushed heart, which causes internal injury, only God can see. And we have to train ourselves to be able to see that injury as, as of equal um, uh, uh, power and negative, negative power as a physical injury. And so they, the rabbis then say that in a famous rabbinic saying that one who humiliates someone else in public, it's as if, or ruins their reputation. It is as if they have taken away their life. It's akin to murder. It's like because all we have is our good name, and if you sully that name, what's a person going to It's like your credit rating, right? To use a coarse contemporary um, but we all know that's true. Once your reputation has been ruined, and we live in an era where it's like it's expanded exponentially with the social media, uh, uh, how how do you go on? How do you resurrect yourself? How do you reclaim who you were? And so the rabbis don't say it's a murder, but they say it's as it's akin to murder. They want to give it that level of weight. And so for Heschel, speaking as a rabbinic Jew, the idea of public humiliation in 1963, of separate but equal, of uh, anything like that, was an abomination. It's considered a great sin. And that's part of what I wanted to share with you is that he's coming at this as a Jew, not as, as a Jew, Um, who's taking his teachings seriously. In the Hebrew language, one word denotes both crimes. Bloodshed in Hebrew is the word that denotes both murder and humiliation. The law demands one should rather be killed than commit murder. That is a Jewish law. Piety demands one should rather commit suicide than offend a person publicly. It is better, the Talmud insists, to throw oneself alive into a burning furnace. That's the way the Talmud talks all the time. <laughs> they always give, like you know, the extreme example, than to humiliate a human being publicly. Let's think about that for a minute. It, it took me, it took me many years, in my role as rabbi, to start to understand the depth of this teaching, uh, and just as an, just as an adult human being. Um, uh, and I've come to take it very seriously uh, to never try to shame anyone publicly. Not to shame them. In other words, if I have something I need to tell them, and it might be shaming or humiliating in any way, I will do my best to find a way to do it in private. Um, Now, again, this gets to the issue, which I've written a lot about, of the Jewish take on what civil debate is. You know, shaming someone publicly is not the same as disagreeing with them on principle, right? You're allowed to do that. You're allowed to have. Uh, you're allowed to have a debate. It's about when it becomes ad hominem, and it becomes about making them less. That we that Judaism says that's an absolute no-no. Very challenging. Uh, so. He he who commits a major sin may repent and be forgiven, but he who offends a person publicly will have no share in the life to come. Again, quoting the kind of exhortations of the Talmud. This is not meant to be, he's not saying, oh, if you shame someone, you're going to hell. He's speaking, he's, he's preaching, he's exhorting the way the Talmud exhorts us to behave correctly. Do you understand what I mean? He's not talking about a literal consequence. He's trying to get across to us the depth of this and the importance of it. Because it is not within the power of God to forgive the sins committed towards men. We know that, right? On Yom Kippur, what do we say before Kol Nidre? All Yom Kippur atones for any sins between us and our Maker. But Yom Kippur does not atone for any sins between us and a fellow human being until we have made amends with that human being. That's just, again, basic Judaism. Uh, We must first ask for forgiveness of those whom our society has wronged before asking for, for the forgiveness of God. So taking this basic Jewish understanding, understanding that racism is a sin, understanding that we have to repent that we can't just go into our houses of worship and say, forgive us for our racism. Can't do it because we're injuring another human being. We have work to do. Daily, we patronize institutions which are visible manifestations of, our, of arrogance toward those whose skin differs from ours. Daily, we cooperate with people who are guilty of active discrimination. How long will I continue to be tolerant of, even a participant in acts of embarrassing and humiliating human beings in restaurants, hotels, buses or parks, employment agencies, public schools and universities? One ought rather be shamed than put others to shame. Our rabbis taught, those who are insulted but do not insult, hear themselves reviled without answering, act through love and rejoice in suffering. Of them, Scripture says, they who love the Lord are as the sun when rising in full splendor. Wait a minute, that's a Jewish quote? (laughs) Okay, I want to point this out to you. Who said, turn the other cheek? A Jewish guy. A Jewish rabbi in the first century. I have to point that out over and over again. Because at the same time as Jesus, other rabbis were saying... Those who are insulted but do not insult hear themselves reviled without answering. They're like the sun rising in full splendor. One of the things we have learned here over the last two, three years in our incredible dialogue with our Christian friends and uh, colleagues has been like, oh, wait, it wasn't the things Jesus said that were so different. It's a whole other historical set of circumstances. Jesus' teachings and Jewish teachings of the first century are essentially so far, 100% aligned. I mean, it's amazing. The breakaway happened later uh, and was not related to the teachings themselves. But because Jesus got two billion followers who thought Jesus said that, nobody knows that Jesus was speaking as a first century rabbi. right? And that is another topic that has been illuminating the skies for us here at the synagogue the last couple of years. Uh, uh, so Heschel can as a Jew say no don't humiliate people if you get if you get crapped on you don't have to crap back on the other person Uh, let us cease to be apologetic cautious timid racial tension and strife is both sin and punishment racial tension and strife is both sin and punishment The Negroes' plight, the blighted areas in the large cities, are they not the fruit of our sins? By negligence and silence, we have all become accessory before the God of mercy to the injustice committed against the Negroes by men of our nation. Our derelictions are many. We have failed to demand, to insist, to challenge, to chastise. In the words of Thomas Jefferson, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just. Um, are you doing okay? Uh, you need a stretch? You, because what I want to do is go to the last section of this, and you can read the middle sections. Um, uh, so go to page, yeah, because I think I'll have time to get through a lot of it. Go to page 96. The way we act, the way we fail to act is a disgrace which must not go on forever. This is not a white man's world. This is not a colored man's world. It is God's world. No man has a place in this world who tries to keep another man in his place. This is Heschel. He just has a way of doing this over and over again. No man has a place in this world who tries to keep another man in his place. It is time for the white man to repent. We have failed to use the avenues open to us to educate the hearts and minds of men, to identify ourselves with those who are underprivileged. But repentance is more than contrition and remorse for sins, for harms done. Repentance means a new insight, a new spirit. It also means a course of action. And that is true about repentance. Repentance in the Jewish tradition is, and you'll sound very familiar to those who've done 12 Steps, is, and in other traditions too. It, it is recognize that you have sinned, that you've done something wrong. Apologize. Make amends. Commit to not doing that sin again. It's, you know, do a fierce moral inventory. So, uh, racism is, is an evil of tremendous power, but God's will transcends all power. Surrender to despair is surrender to evil. It is important to feel anxiety. It is sinful to wallow in despair. Another bumper sticker for me. (laughs) (laughs) It is important to feel anxiety. It is sinful to wallow in despair.
1: should get that one made right now. I'm
0: telling you, that's why I wanted to to read him. You take this home, get your highlighter out, mark your favorites, (laughs) That's why I feel like his words should not be stuck just inside the pages of the book. Um, what we need is a total mobilization of heart, intelligence, and wealth for the purpose of love and justice. Okay, now again, he's talking Jewish. Bechol bechol uvechol meodecha. You shall love Adonai, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul is also your intelligence in tribu. And the odecha is understood by the rabbis to mean your physical, re- your, your material resources, your might, your stuff. So that's, again, I love hearing the echo of the, of the Torah in his in beautiful English. Uh, what we need is a total mobilization of heart, intelligence, and wealth for the purpose of love and justice. Sounds like Martin Luther King, doesn't it? God is in search of man, waiting, hoping for man to do God's will. The most practical thing is not to weep, but to act and to have faith in God's assistance and grace in our trying to do his will. This world, this society can be redeemed. God has a stake in our moral predicament. I cannot believe that God will be defeated. What we face is a human emergency. It will require much devotion wisdom, and divine grace to eliminate that massive sense of inferiority, the creeping bitterness. It will require a high quality of imaginative sympathy, sustained cooperation both in thought and in action, by individuals as well as by institutions to weed out memories of frustration and roots of resentment. It's true now? Is it it's going to be true forever? we must act even when inclination and vested interest would militate against equality human self-interest is often our nemesis it is the audacity of faith that redeems us to have faith is to be ahead of one's normal thoughts to transcend confused motivations to lift oneself by one's bootstraps mere knowledge or belief is too feeble to be a cure of man's hostility to man of man's tendency to fratricide. The only remedy is personal sacrifice, to abandon, to reject what seems dear and even plausible for the sake of the greater truth, to do more than one is ready to understand for the sake of God. Required is a breakthrough, a leap of action. It is the deed that will purify the heart. It is the deed that will sanctify the mind. The deed is the test, the trial, and the risk. This is where I go. Yes, but I mean it, you know. It's like, what do you want of me? And uh, how do I balance my personal life with the demands of the moment? I put that out as my own heartfelt question that I know many of us have been asking at this time. Um, So that's what I meant about Afflict the Comfortable. Uh, with words like this. The plight of the Negro must become our most important concern. Seen in the light of our religious tradition, the Negro problem is God's gift to America. The the test of our integrity, a magnificent spiritual opportunity. Is this guy something or what? Because he's speaking from the biggest perspective, beyond our little self-interest. Humanity can thrive only when challenged, when called upon to answer new demands, to reach out for new heights. Again, this is Torah. Lo, remember these 40 years that I led you through the wilderness and tested you to find out what was in your hearts, whether you would fulfill my directives or not. I'm quoting Deuteronomy. And this is the text that Heschel lives in, uh, that humanity can thrive only when challenged. Imagine how smug, complacent, vapid, and foolish we would be if we had to subsist on prosperity alone. (laughs) It is for us to understand that religion is not sentimentality, that God is not a patron. Religion is a demand. God is a challenge speaking to us in the language of human situations. God's voice is in the dimension of history. The universe is done. The great masterpiece still undone, still in the process of being created, is history. For accomplishing God's grand design, God needs the help of man. Man is and has has been the instrument of God, which he may or may not use in consonance with the grand design. Okay, it's okay, it happens Um, we are the instrument of God given free choice so we may or may not use our gifts in consonance with the grand design life is clay and righteousness the mold in which God wants history to be shaped but human beings instead of fashioning the clay deform the shape God needs mercy, righteousness. His needs cannot be satisfied in space by sitting in pews, by visiting temple, but in history, in time. It is within the realm of history that man is charged with God's mission. This is one of Heschel's core teachings, if you've read him before. He says that what happened to the Jews in exile was that rather than learning how to, since we could no longer sanctify God in space, because we didn't have a holy temple, we didn't have a homeland. We, we learned how to sanctify God in time. And we became, and, and it's a deep teaching of his that he talks about a lot that we make, the, Jew, the Jewish people, the Jewish tradition makes cathedrals in time, Sabbaths and festivals, and that it is through time that we enact God's, that, that time is not an endless repeating mythic cycle but that it in fact is a stream flowing that we we have to travel with and not just expect an eternal return. Um, uh, There are those who maintain that the situation is too grave for us to do much about it, that whatever we might do would be too little and too late. I'm on page 98 that the most practical thing we can do is to weep and to despair. If such a message is true, then God has spoken in vain. Such a message is 4,000 years too late. It is good Babylonian theology, he says. In the meantime, certain things have happened. Abraham, Moses, the prophets, the Christian gospel, and again, if he was alive today, he would add uh, Muhammad's uh, prophecies in the Koran. History is not all darkness. It was good that Moses did not study theology under the teachers of that message. Otherwise, I would still be in Egypt building pyramids. (laughs) Abraham was all alone in the world of paganism. The difficulties he faced were hardly less grave than ours. The greatest heresy is despair. Despair of men's power for goodness and men's power for love. It is not enough for us to exhort the government What we must do is set an example, not merely to acknowledge the Negro, but to welcome him, not grudgingly, but joyously, to take delight in enabling him to enjoy what is due to him. This is helpful to me because I remember that I can do this anywhere at any time, that it's not just a political and structural problem. It's a human problem. It's all of it. But I I know I can do the human thing. I don't know how much I can affect the political structure, but I can do the human thing. Uh, We are all pharaohs or slaves of pharaohs. It is sad to be a slave of pharaoh. It is horrible to be a pharaoh. Mm -hmm. Daily, we should take account and ask, what have I done today to alleviate the anguish, to mitigate the evil, to prevent humiliation? Let there be a grain of profit in every man. What's he quoting? Anybody know? When Moses is despairing and says, God, I can't do this anymore, and God allows the spirit of prophecy to rest on the 70 elders so that there'll be more people with this energy, but then two of the the prophets, Eldad and Medad, in the camp are prophesying unauthorized, and Joshua comes up to Moses and said, "They're, they're prophesying in the camp. Stop them!" And Moses says, "Would that all my people were prophets!" <laughs> so again, when when you hear when because I've had the privilege of studying Torah this long, I hear what Heschel, the text behind Heschel, saying: "Let there be a grain of prophet in every man." Yes. Our concern must be expressed not symbolically but literally not only publicly, but privately, not only occasionally, but regularly. What we need is the involvement of every one of us as individuals. What we need is restlessness, a constant awareness of the monstrosity of injustice. Now again, I won't go into detail, but he's quoting two crucial Hasidic categories called ratso which means ratso is our restlessness, and Shov is our desire to return. And that the human being in Hasidic sort of sacred psychology and Jewish mysticism is a constant, in constant tension between our questing and our desire for home and peace. Right? And that's understood as a polarity of the human experience. Uh, The concern for the dignity of the Negro must be an explicit tenet of our creeds. He who offends a Negro, whether as a landowner or employer, whether as waiter or salesgirl, is guilty of offending the majesty of God. No minister or layman has a right to question the principle that reverence for God is shown in reverence for human beings. That the fear we must feel, lest we hurt or humiliate a human being, must be as unconditional as our fear of God. And, and here, see, fear isn't bad. Fearing, humiliating someone is a good fear. And he relates that to what it means when you say fear God. Not fear God because we're going to get punished. Fear God because you have a conscience that's working. To be arrogant, oh, uh, an act of violence is an act of desecration. To be arrogant toward man is to be blasphemous toward God. In the words of Pope John XXIII, when opening the 21st Ecumenical Council, which had happened just then, divine providence is leading us to a new order of human relations. History has made us all neighbors. The age of moral mediocrity and complacency has run out. Okay, we're working on it. (laughs) This is a time for radical commitment, for radical action. But he's true, history has made us all neighbors, and that's what's different now. Let us not forget the story of the sons of Jacob. Joseph, the dreamer of dreams, was sold into slavery by his own brothers. But at the end, it was Joseph who rose to be the savior of those who had sold him into captivity. Mankind lies groaning, afflicted by fear, frustration, and despair. Perhaps it is the will of God that among the Josephs of the future. There will be many who have once been slaves and whose skin is dark. Well, how do you like that? The great spiritual resources of the Negroes, their capacity for joy, their quiet nobility, their attachment to the Bible, their power of worship and enthusiasm may prove a blessing to all mankind. In the words of the prophet Amos, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. A mighty stream expressive of the vehemence of a never-ending, surging, fighting movement. As if obstacles had to be washed away for justice to be done. No rock is so hard that water cannot pierce it. As it says in Job, but the mountain falls and crumbles away and the rock is removed from its place. The waters wear away the stones. Justice is not a mere norm but a fighting challenge, a restless drive. Righteousness as a mere tributary, feeding the immense stream of human interests, is easily exhausted and more easily abused. But righteousness is not a trickle. It is God's power in the world, a torrent, an impetuous drive full of grandeur and majesty. Last page. The surge is choked. The sweep is blocked, yet the mighty stream will break all dikes. Justice, people seem to agree, is a principle, a norm, an ideal of the highest importance. We all insist that it ought to be, but it may not be. In the eyes of the prophets, justice is more than an idea or a norm. Justice <laughs> is charged with the omnipotence of God. What ought to be, shall be. Thank you for letting me read that to you. Let's sit for 30 seconds and quiet so anyone, everyone can collect their own thoughts. And then Susan's going to share something.
5: Stephen Hawking just wrote a piece that I think is meant to be distributed universally, and he speaks about the greatest, it's so so in keeping with what we've been hearing, he speaks about our greatest danger and problem is the inequality in the world today. And um, what Heschel says about humiliation, really struck home with me in, and reinforcing what Hawking was writing about because um, now it's not the black people, it's the the flyover people. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm.
1: And you know, we've been humiliating The
0: them deplorables, since, yeah. Since um,
5: I can't think when not, but I'm, I was particularly thinking about it in connection with the Scopes trial. And how, we, you know, they've it felt under a burden of humiliation because their education didn't
1: mm-hmm. measure up. Mm-hmm.
5: And um, so I feel as though for us today, it, maybe in those days we could say, well, the Negroes, the black people, we can set them aside. Right, there
0: were legal barriers to overcome, yeah. Mm-hmm.
5: Racial barriers. But now, you know, we have met the enemy and they adopt. And us. Um, Together with the idea that the
0: issue is still rampant, but the, the population has changed, but the stakes
4: are higher. Yes, yes, Ron. I mean, it, it struck me the Negro problem is God's gift to America, and that it was so in front of everyone and so blatant that it was easier to identify as the problem. And I think one of the issues today is it's more diffuse. Is it? fly over people, or is it despoilation of the earth, or is it, you know, the women controlling the bodies, or is it 20 other
1: things? Yes, um, yes.
4: And, you know, we don't have a focus, we have 50 focuses, and then you don't have any focus at all.
0: Yes, yes, well put, well put. That is our chal- one of our big challenges right now, this feeling of, of being overwhelmed. Yes. Uh, sir, and then, uh, what's your name again? Steve. Steve, and then Nathan.
1: I was a little surprised at his quoting Jefferson, who...
0: <coughs> was a slave owner.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, he may have slept with his slaves, but <laughs> he wasn't
1: letting them go. Uh,
0: good point, point. and I wonder if Heschel was even thinking about that when he chose that quote. I bet he wasn't. And now, uh, again, given who he seems to have been, he would have revised that dramatically uh, if someone had pointed it out to him. That's the feeling I get about him, because that's an excellent point. Thank you. Nathan?
1: I just always think about how boring America would be without black people
0: here. <laughs> well, yes, a whole other course we can do is how how African Americans and Jewish Americans invented American popular culture together. You know, it's really a, it's an incredible story. Um, uh, what, what I want to say um, is that w- one of the challenges of the overwhelm is that it can make us, it can, it can scatter our attention so that we don't pay attention to the ongoing dynamics of each of the problems. They're all interconnected. But for me, uh, uh, the, I've said this before, and it's an oversimplification, but what anti-Semitism is as the shadow side of European culture, racism against African Americans is the shadow side of American civilization. It's sort of like, it's the dark secret that can't be kept secret because this nation was built on slave labor. And that in order to justify and continue that structure, even after the slaves were liberated, African Americans were singled out as subhuman. And that persists. As we know, um, anyone of us who has uh, colleagues, acquaintances, friends who are African-American, and actually hangs around with them and asks them about their experience, learns quickly that they're walking through a different landscape than I am. And that's why it's been such a blessing for me to eventually make close relationships with some African-American friends of mine. Uh, Because I never noticed. Because it doesn't happen to me. And so then, once you become aware of it, the, the, the sort of stupid debates about is there racism, isn't there, just they like, could we please stop talking about it and listen to these people's experiences? Because it didn't go away any more than anti Semitism went away after the Nazis were defeated, right? Just because a law gets passed or an enemy gets defeated doesn't mean that a systemic, structural form of oppression uh, gets eliminated. And I still think that racism is, in the United States, key. And that's my own conviction. And so the beauty of that is that I'm not trying to persuade you because what it does, it gives me a focus among all those 50. And that's what I need. It's like, I'm not going to ignore the rest, but I also don't want to be overwhelmed by the rest. And since, this is, since I'm passionate about this, it gives me a place to work. You know, we all need a place to start to work on. The, so, so the blessing would be if each, to the degree that each of us can identify what we feel passionately about, that's wrong. And then go for it, uh, and then encourage and support each other. I'm thinking out loud, but those are useful thoughts actually in the, our current situation because none of us can cover the whole field right now. It's like forget about it, and. Jews represent about 2% of the population of the United States, but about uh, um, 0.04% of 1% of the global population. Of the, what? the global population. Oh, okay. um, uh, but if you're from New York, everybody's Jewish. Esther. <laughs> <laughs> twice The new novel that won the Pulitzer, right? Yeah, Yeah. okay. And one of the questions that you raised is
5: how could the men who framed the uh, Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, not deal with slavery as as a primary issue uh, that America functioned with? And And what did
0: you come up with? Right. that it was not clear. self-interest <laughs> was self-interest, self-interest, was self-interest combined with and I'll get, you, I'll, I'll, the, the, I'll get both of you yeah.
2: the politics of it the, the northern colonies
0: needed the southern colonies to unite with them right.
2: and they, 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 they,
4: they had to yield on certain things in order to keep 13 colonies together
0: that's right and another, so that's one factor there are going to be many answers to this question another factor, not, uh, not but but and you know, when we study the um, Torah, and you recognize quickly that the, um, uh, that the Torah does not outlaw slavery. Right.
1: Right.
0: As far as I can tell, it's because no one had ever dreamed at that point that there could be a, situ- a, a social order without slaves. So what the Torah legislates is humane treatment yeah. of your slaves. But not, and, and people say, how could they do that? And it's like, how could they do that? And let's just find out a uh, hundred years from now what we were completely oblivious to, oblivious to that someone's going to say, how could they do that? So we're always trying to expand our perception. And for me, I've said this many times, and then I think we have to stop. Unless uh, Yeah, I think it would be a good place to stop. For me, um, when it says, and God created Adam in the divine image, Male and female, God created them. That is the sublime principle, the truth, that gets expressed, but that we have to continually expand our understanding of that it really means all humans. right? And we're on that trajectory, just like when it says all men are created equal in the Declaration of Independence, that we as Americans are charged with, in my opinion, taking that... The, what we find to be the the heart of that principle, and expanding it in both understanding and practice, to truly include all human beings. Uh, African Americans were three fifths of a person. Landowners didn't have the vote. Women, uh, and so, but the principle expressed, then, like ju- let justice flow like a, let let it flow forth like a mighty stream. Let it break those dikes of our of our both. Uh, cluelessness, our conditioned understandings, and our selfish self-interest. You know, all of them roll together. And So we have to, that's why he says, um, uh, where do you say, God is a challenge, right? I don't know where I'll find that. But uh, uh, we're challenged by these principles. And uh, that's, um, uh, that's important to remember. So feel free to take this home. Feel free to buy these books online if you want. They're available. And I'm going to choose something else next week, and I'll photocopy it, because I don't have my curriculum together, that if you know me. Um, can I just say you. something about that before you close it up? Yes, before we close? Sure, Abby. You know, I did
5: study in the church, and I have learned so much here. And what I, you know, when I got back, when I... Know there were Jews in the Bible till eight
1: years ago. So, you know, <laughs> no, I didn't
5: know. Maybe oh, it's my people anyway. I really, and I see the Christian people in the churches, the Christian nation. You know, if they knew, if they, if they studied under rabbis, yeah, if they understood the wisdom and things instead of that square box they live in, because they're never going to protect us. As long as they stay in that little box that they learned, what they learned, and they're good at that. And, right, right. And I feel like we're such a small population that if we had the, the Christians, uh, Jesus, he was a rabbi, but they, they love Jesus, but they hate you. Uh, we have to be the ones to step forward and somehow and educate them so that they're with, uh,
0: they're for, right. but so, not against. Two thoughts. Not or against. Two thoughts. The, uh, many Christians are, are doing this. Yeah, for sure. Here's one. Here's one right? do, you know, do you know, Susan? I know, so I've,
5: I'm in that community. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yes. Uh, many, and when you talk about that box, that's everybody's challenge. So our challenge is to get our little box their cha- and then once we're out, we can say, hey, are you and your box there, yeah. come on out. Jesus, Bob, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, we were over time. What do you want to say, Blaise?
2: Um I want to know more, because I don't, about the humiliation of Germany by the United States after World War One. Not and, just the United States. Well, the allies. Oh, yeah. And that the role of um, religion at that time, that was there a role that made that possible? Because, according to this, that was a very godless,
0: um, bad move.
2: Yeah, a bad,
0: bad move, move, humiliating your uh, the person well, you just and it defeated. it has to
2: do with the slaves and the treatment of the slaves, and where did the Bible or God or anything else come into how? the Allies would handle their victory that they didn't do right and left a, I mean, the legacy of that was, yeah.
0: Well, let's not answer that question now, but it's certainly pertinent. I want to close before we scatter. So we're done. Susan, thanks for coming. Hope you can come back next week. Let's end now, because people need to go. Feel free to keep talking afterwards. I hope this has been worthwhile. Yes. Thank you.
2: Thank you.